You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. The wind blows, trees sway, an animal of unknown identification is heard slipping through the forest as a British army officer who went out to hunt rebels becomes the hunted. They brought us the American Revolution, a settled continent from sea to shining sea, country music, and Elvis. So I think we can give a thank you very much to that sometimes forgotten American immigrant group, the Scots-Irish. They are a group that may have done more than just clear the trees and enlist in the armies that would fight all of America's wars. They may have defined American political thinking, and their influence may still weigh heavily on political discussions even in 2012, in everything from healthcare to financial regulation to welfare. But it's a misunderstood group, and their story is a many-faceted one. We'll discuss this, but first. Major Ferguson had a hell of a job, you might say. He was sent out into the wild lands without an army. He had instructions to create an army from thin air, or more precisely, from the woods, from a group of fairly recent immigrants in the Carolina Piedmont region, known to be no friends at all to those Charleston South Carolinians who were rebelling against His Majesty. With a new militia that he would raise from the woodsmen, he'd go over and meet the army of Lord Cornwallis safely encamped in Charlotte so that Cornwallis could have a left flank for his army to protect his supply line, now reaching to Charleston, which he had captured in one of a series of disappointing turn of events for the Patriot cause in the South. So, in May 1780, with a hundred redcoats from New York and a few locals, he went into the Piedmont region telling people about the great treatment they'd get if they fought for their king now in his time of need, and if they joined together to teach those who did they think they are is on the coast? A lesson about who is in charge. And he also left broadsides, ordering any rebels in this region to surrender or be met with fire and sword. Big words for a guy with a hundred men. Oh no, he didn't, was the reaction from the local area, which, despite its lack of a spirit of 76 generally, did have some patriots who got word to nearby militias. Decisively, the Virginia militia leaders, William and Arthur Campbell, perturbed by a British force near the backcountry they had settled not so many years ago to get away from the British, Benjamin Cleveland and his Wilkes County, North Carolina militia, and local units led by Charles and Joseph McDowell all joined together to fight this foe. So while Major Ferguson foraged and recruited and did build a force of more than a thousand men, loyalists, he started to hear some talk in the forest country. There was, he was told by informers, an opposition forming to him. Yet he wasn't so sure. For three days he waited to see what would happen. Maybe it was just old country rumors. Maybe they were trying to get with whispers what they cannot secure by the musket. Then he heard more talk, and he decided not to take any more chances. 
He took the force he had recruited and retreated towards Charlotte, in fact sending a messenger ahead to ask Cornwallis for reinforcements to cover his retreat. He would move too late. Somewhere between the border of South and North Carolina today, a place called Kings Mountain, he could see past his campfires a haunting sight. The woods around him were filled with shadows. His hilltop had been enveloped by enemy troops. Still, he was calm as befitting an officer of the British Army. He led the greatest army in the world, and they had crushed the rebels in three Carolina battles already. And he had the high ground. The soldiers surrounding his location were made up of patriots called Overmountain Men, men from the wilderness west of the Appalachians. Literally, they came from nowhere. Some from present-day Tennessee, barely settled then. They had marched 13 days solid and didn't complain at all at the prospect of catching a British army. Their relationship with local Indians allowed them the kind of safe and efficient passage, not possible for clunky foreign armies. Kings Mountain, the location Ferguson had unwittingly chosen to make battle, was one of many rocky, forested hills in the upper Piedmont near the border between North and South Carolina. It's been described as a footprint, so one side was like a big set of toes, and then the other a tiny round heel, with the highest point being that heel. It was now clear. Attacker was now prey. 900 patriots, including Campbell and John Crockett, the father of Davy Crockett, approached the steep base of the western ridge of King's Mountain. Ferguson had no time to build fortifications. His troops were shocked when hordes of screaming patriots charged up the hill. They came from two sides. Campbell's troops assorted that high heel of the wooded mountain, the smallest area but highest point, while McDowell's unit attacked the main loyalist position, that surrounding toe print. These wild fighters fought in an ungentlemanly manner. Ferguson had referred to them as mongrels. Where they needed, they fired on loyalists from behind rocks and trees as they came up that hill, which is usually your disadvantage in military strategy, right? Well, King's Mountain might have been a patriot disaster right there, and yet another southern victory for His Majesty in the Revolutionary War, because Ferguson decided to have his troops fix bayonets. Then he rallied his troops to charge down the heel of the mountain and destroy Campbell's force coming up. When you're charging down a hill with bayonets, you've got weight on your side. The British army had well-crafted bayonets. Patriots had none at all. So the rebels retreated down the hill at this charge. It was almost a debacle. But Campbell was able to rally his troops before they retreated any further than the base of that hill and to get back to the base and resume sniping at the British. This event would happen a few more times. The Overmountain men would go up the hill, and Ferguson's troop would force them down by bayonet. While Campbell attacked that heel, McDowell was doing the same thing at the toe. The British were holding on to their position, but it was getting more and more expensive with each charge. The Patriots were getting good hits on them as they charged down with their bayonets, whereas, although they had a helpful height advantage for the charges, when shooting downhill, there's the problem of overshooting. You can't straighten your weapon, so you're overshooting. The battle lasted an hour, and the casualties on Ferguson's men were heavy. Ferguson rode back and forth across the hill, unperturbed, blowing a silver whistle. Campbell's men finally charged up that hill, broke through, and reached the top of the hill, so they were behind Ferguson's men. And now they were making some real hay on those British soldiers and loyalists. Ferguson still tried, going, Hurrah, brave boys, the day is ours, as we knocked off his horse by musket fire and killed. Well, seeing their leader felled like this, uh, the Loyalists surrendered. Eager to avenge a previous battle, the Waxhaw Massacre, where men under General Tarleton had killed a sizable amount of 
Abraham Buford's Continental soldiers after he had surrendered. The men weren't so eager to allow them to surrender yet. Give him Tarleton's quarter, they shouted. Give him Buford's play. After a few more minutes of bloodletting, in which a significant amount of the surrendering loyalists were killed, the battle ended. It had lasted about an hour. The loyalists suffered 244 killed, 163 wounded, 668 prisoners. For the Patriots, just 29 killed and 58 wounded. But it was more than just those numbers. Kings Mountain was a pivotal moment in the history of the American Revolution, coming after a series of disasters and humiliations in the South. The fall of Charleston, the capture of an American army there, the destruction of another American army at the Battle of Camden, the Waxhaw's Massacre, the surprising, decisive victory for the Patriots at Kings Mountain was a great boost to the morale. The Tories of the Carolina backcountry were broken as a military force in the Revolution. In the winning of the West, Theodore Roosevelt wrote of Kings Mountain, this brilliant victory marked the turning point of the American Revolution. Thomas Jefferson called it the turn of the tide of success. Additionally, the destruction of Ferguson's command and the looming threat of these over-mountain men in the mountains caused Lord Cornwallis to leave Charlotte and retreat back to South Carolina and set a group of events that would lead to the Battle of Cowpens and the Battle of Yorktown. But something else. It was embedded in many minds as the event that demonstrates the Scots-Irish connection to the American Revolution and American history and America's wars. From its leaders' names, McDowell and Campbell, it's obvious the presence of Irish and Scotch, that somewhat forgotten nationality that built America. So, about those Ulster Presbyterians, as they might have been called at the time of the American Revolution, the Scots-Irish, people in America who can trace their ancestry to Scotland with a two- or three-generational stop over in Northern Ireland, who came in very large numbers to America in several waves. They are defined by that time they spent in Northern Ireland, in what was called the Ulster Plantation, the northern counties where British kings and queens had crushed chieftain resistance and wanted to quickly populate the area and start farming. Thus, they brought the Scots in, but then didn't always treat them very well. After confiscating the estates of several rebellious Irish chieftains, like the O'Neills, for instance, who had fled Ulster, King James I granted these new lands to English nobles and merchants who were his friends, with the understanding that they would resettle the land, grow crops, and make the plantation profitable. James was Scottish and Protestant, so he encouraged those from Scotland to inhabit the Ulster colony. Generally, these were lowland Scots that would come here and eventually go to America. The Highlanders of northern Scotland, who still spoke the ancient Gallic tongue and were often Catholic as their native Irish cousins were, were a troublesome bunch, and thus not heavily included in the colony. In 1610, King James formally initiated the process of transplanting people from lowland Scotland and northern England to Ulster, where they would become productive farmers and loyal Protestant subjects of the crown. The native Ulster Irish, who lived on the land for generations, were driven from their homes or, even worse, allowed to remain as forced laborers. Yes, this is the start of that trouble that still persists today in this country, and you can blame King James for it, that is, if you have to blame somebody. The city of Belfast rose from the bogs and became a successful trading center. The entire plantation was a huge success, a wool and flax-fueled economy, so successful that it competed with London. Uh Uh-oh. Parliament became scared and then started to restrict Ulster. And the leases there became so valuable that new colonists wanted to move in, and the nobles and merchants started holding auctions for for the leases. 
Even if a Scots-Irish family had lived there for 10 years and worked the land, they could be taken by a new immigrant from Scotland, England, or even some of the native Irish. On top of all this, they had to deal with crop failures and, oh, the people whose lands they had taken the native Irish, so-called woodcurrents that would come out of the woods and attack their settlements and attempt to get their land back, sometimes ferociously. With that hard, scrabble-fighting nature, they came to America with the same kind of frontier, eat-what-you-kill mentality. They settled the backwoods of many states, made war, also peace, with the Indians. They aggressively defended their lands in America as they would in Ulster. They quarreled with their seacoast American countrymen and with the British monarch. The name Scots-Irish, or as they were called in the past, Scotch-Irish, and that debate, by the way, goes on forever. I use Scots-Irish because it's more polite in modern times to call people Scots and things Scotch. But in the past, Scotch was used, and you can completely justify it. The term's confusing for this reason, all these terms. They're not all Scots, and they were not wholly Irish, at least not Irish in the way we think of Irish now. The majority were of Scottish ancestry, but had not seen Scotland in their lives, perhaps. But there were other dissenters and escapees from mainland Great Britain in the Ulster Plantation as well, who were not Scot. There were English Puritans in the Ulster Plantation. There were Quaker dissenters like the Millhouse family that gave us Richard Nixon, just one of many presidents with Scots-Irish ancestry. There were also French Huguenots, like the relatives of Davy Crockett, yet they were all put in this group, Scots-Irish, as they came to America. And while they weren't all perfectly Scottish, they weren't exactly Irish either, at least that that term now usually means Irish Catholics. They were from Northern Ireland, and in some cases their families were Irish just for a short time. But arriving on boats from Ireland in America, they were identified from the country whence they came. They were identified as Irish and self-identified that way, yet not in all cases. One minister, a native of Scotland, wrote to a governor, 1718, We are surprised to hear ourselves termed Irish people when we so frequently ventured our all for the British crown and liberties against the Irish papist and gave all tests of our loyalty which the government of Ireland required and are always ready to do the same when required. But that preacher was making a tough argument because the term Irish was sticking in the 18th century, and most people identify with, well, where you were born and where your father and mother was born. So Northern Ireland was the true home for these settlers, and Scotland was that faraway ancient home. Not surprisingly, the names of the old home, like Belfast, Ulster, Londonderry, were reflected in names of new American settlements. And only a few were named after Scottish places, a couple of Glasgow's, that they had probably not seen. If you asked President Andrew Jackson or President James Knox Polk their nationality, they would have probably said Irish, which is the way their families would have described it. President Jackson was born in Waxhaus, uh, North Carolina, Scots-Irish country, and he was among the many presidents, Ronald Reagan, Woodrow Wilson, James Buchanan, William McKinley, Theodore Roosevelt, Benjamin Harrison, Ulysses S. Grant, who have some Scots-Irish ancestry. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All of this presidential Scots-Irishness shouldn't be shocking. After all, Scots-Irish represented almost a quarter of the white population of the early United States. And since they concentrated in settlement zones in some states, 
They had more representation there. Pennsylvania is a key one. They settled in what is now the middle of the state, but would have been its rough frontier then. Blair, Bedford, Mifflin, Adams, later Westmoreland counties. In Pennsylvania, they may have been 40% of the white population, and from moment one, were trying to bump the old Quakers out of the control of that state's politics. Theodore Roosevelt called the Irish Presbyterians a bold and hardy race, and they had to be. Settling those lands populated by Indians, they had to fight for their land and sometimes engaged in brutal struggles. Not all of this history is cheery, but it did occur, and it's reflected in American historical culture. Religion is part of what would force them to leave Ulster. Presbyterian preachers were intense, and it was a different church, of course, than the Church of England. It was a Calvinist church with presbyters, or local elders, running the local churches instead of some faraway bishop. Queen Anne, and then those Hanoverian King Georges came to power. They were persecuted, and restrictions were put on their religion and agriculture. New test acts were established. The test isn't like a test you would take in school. The test was religion. Was it the right one? Which, according to Queen Anne and the Georges, would have been the Church of England. Did you get married by a Presbyterian minister? Not good to the government of England. Wanted a crown office? You can't have it if you're Presbyterian. But it's not just the religion. Their economics were harassed as well. All of their wool had to be sold to England. They couldn't approach other markets and make good money. If that wasn't bad enough, as the altar plantation became successful and the original leases expired, many more Scots and English, even native Irish, wanted to come in, and landlords racked that rent, sold it to the highest bidder. Add all of this to a bad crop in 1717, and you started seeing boat after boat in the harbor of Philadelphia. The Pennsylvania Gazette mentioned these as Many unhappy circumstances of the common people of Ireland that had resulted in an exodus. Poverty, wretchedness, misery of want are almost universal among them. There is not corn enough raised for their subsistence in one year with another. At the same time, the trade and manufacture of the nation are cramped and discouraged. The laboring people have little to do and consequently are not able to purchase bread at its, at its present dear rate. The taxes are nevertheless exceedingly heavy and money very scarce. Merchant Jonathan Dickinson reported from Philadelphia in 1717 that there had arrived from ye north of Ireland many hundreds in about four months, and that during the summer we have had twelve or thirteen sail of ships from the north of Ireland with a swarm of people. To New England ports between 1714 and 1720 came fifty-five ships from Ireland, one with two hundred passengers from Londonderry, another with a hundred and fifty passengers, some with smallpox. Secretary Logan of Pennsylvania wrote, it looks as if Ireland is to send all of its inhabitants hither, for last week not less than six ships arrived, and every day two or three arrive also. Five ways of immigration occurred, 1717, 1725, 1740, 1754, and 1771, the Great Migration, right before the American Revolution, as many as 200,000 Ulstermen had emigrated to the American colonies. The second waves in the 1720s were so large that not merely the Friends of Ireland were concerned about Ulster, but the English Parliament became concerned and appointed a commission to investigate these departures. It was partially the good news. Reports were coming back to Ulster from the first immigrants were highly favorable, especially those that went to Pennsylvania. Land was cheap, authorities well disposed, the country was vast, soil was fertile beyond all expectation. Here in America, they could leave the feudal system behind. More than a few said, our lords didn't come along. Pennsylvania became the favorite point of immigration, but Scots-Irish also went to Boston. 
They had a little less of a welcome reception. They expected religious freedom, but could not get citizenship in Massachusetts as Presbyterians. They had to join the established church, the congregational one, and few were willing to do that. But they were granted a township right near the present city of Portland, Maine, and there was a large colony that was established in what is now New Hampshire. One advantage of the new Ulsters of America over that old Ulster, there's quite a bit of land in America. And once lands are populated, you don't have to fight with new settlers over the same area. They could move, or the new settlers could move on. And so many Scots-Irish, along with Germans and others, took the Great Wagon Road from Philadelphia to the Shenandoah Valley, settling all along the way. So in Philadelphia, in Maryland, in North Carolina and New Hampshire, you started to see towns, Derry, Down, Letterkenny, Antrim, Londonderry, wherever they went, churches would be constructed. The Presbyterian religion they would practice in these backcountry churches saw the king as no more than the vassal of God. If he overstepped, resistance was completely ethical. Scots-Irish first came to America 50 years before the Revolution, and that pace of immigration kept up into the 1760s. About 200,000 Scots-Irish were likely in America at the time of the Revolution. Therefore, it's not surprising to find Scots-Irish leading the independence movement and being, if you will, the muscle behind the Revolution in western Pennsylvania, northern Delaware, and parts of the South. In 1775, it was Scots-Irish in Mecklenburg, North Carolina, that declared King George's power annulled before the nation did. There's good evidence that the Presbyterians leaned patriot almost exclusively. An Episcopalian of Philadelphia said that a Presbyterian loyalist was a thing unheard of. A Hessian captain wrote in 1778, Call this war by whatever name you may. Only call it not an American rebellion. It is nothing more or less than a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian rebellion. British politician Horace Walpole probably had the most humorous way of describing it. There is no use crying about it. Cousin America has run off with a Presbyterian parson, and that is the end of it. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right? is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep, about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. The King took notice, too. King George's advisors called the revolution a Presbyterian war, indicating their disdain for the dissenting religion. When redcoats would enter the colonies, their favorite target for torching were those Presbyterian churches built decades before. 
Yet, this was all a little bit of spin from the opponents of the revolution that it was a Presbyterian war, right? After all, the start of the American Revolution was in Boston, and as we discussed, very few Scots-Irish there, though they came through there at times. The Minutemen who first took British fire were Congregationalists by and large, Puritan stock. The Virginian troublemakers were Anglicans, still following the Church of England while severing ties with the mother country. Since among the English, Presbyterians were seen as a kind of radical, troublemaking group. It was useful to paint the American and revolutionists merely Presbyterian horseplay. But in truth, they were just one part of that independence coalition. Having said that, it is hard to see how you could remove that part of the independence coalition and still have a revolution. While they weren't the only ones in the battlefield, take them off, and the revolution might have been confined to a local uprising in Massachusetts and a gentleman's tobacco farmer disagreement in Virginia and other isolated complainers never able to join and take up arms. Because of their pro-independence work in the middle states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Maryland, Delaware, the states most reluctant to join the independence movement, the Scots-Irish could be said to be the glue that avoided a fractured revolution. Cornwallis would have loved if he could have suppressed New England and then swept down and taken care of any troublemakers one colony at a time. So there, filling up militias were the Scots-Irish. There were more militia members in Pennsylvania, for instance, than the actual number of redcoats that were brought over in the armada that came to New York. The Irish waves of 1740 and 1750, prior to the signing of the Declaration, gave America the guns and the numbers and made revolution mathematically realistic. Scots-Irish in the Valley of Virginia were enthusiastically patriotic. The people of Augusta sent 137 barrels of flour to relieve the poor of Boston after the famous tea party. The new county seat of Rockbridge County, formed in 1777 in Virginia, chose the name of Lexington to honor the opening bottle of the American Revolution. Yet we're speaking in general terms, and there are some contradictions to this idea that the Revolution was a Scots-Irish war. Initially, the backcountry settlers did not always agree with Easterners. In Philadelphia, annoyed that the Philadelphia Quakers had not provided a militia for their security, a group called the Paxton Boys, Scots-Irish mostly, attacked a friendly settlement of Indians and then marched on Philadelphia to express their grievances to the Easterners. Ben Franklin was among those who negotiated the settlement with the Paxton Boys. In the Carolinas, things were not as friendly as they could be as well. Some in the Carolina backcountry had just finished fighting with the seacoast plantation owners when revolution broke out. This was the regulator movement, mostly Scots-Irish, a rebellion not against England, but against the colonial government in Carolina fought by the backcountry Scots-Irish, and it was crushed brutally just four years before the American Revolution. So you can imagine that some in the Piedmont were not so hasty to help make their seacoast rivals free and independent, and thus even more powerful over them. There was considerable Toryism and loyalism in the Carolina Piedmont. The Continental Congress actually saw this and tried to repair the damage. They sent two Presbyterian ministers at the pay of the Continental Congress, salary of $40 a month, to try to win support for the Patriot cause. Hughes and Hooper, two North Carolina delegates to Congress and signers of the Declaration of Independence, persuaded Presbyterian ministers in Philadelphia to engage in a letter-writing campaign to their Carolina fellow ministers. Many reluctantly came over to the Patriot side, but at best, they were tepid supporters. 
So as is always the case with nationalities, you can't always paint a broad brush. But many of the soldiers in Valley Forge were from Scots-Irish families. Joseph Galloway, a loyalist in the Continental Congress, said that half the army was Scotch-Irish. That was probably an exaggeration. He wasn't a supporter of the revolution. General Howe indirectly paid tribute to the excellent marksmanship of the Scots-Irish when he said they had made rifles that were perfected with little knowledge of ballistics. George Washington was moved to say, if defeated everywhere else, I will make my stand for liberty among the Scots-Irish of my native Virginia. This has been picked up by historians of old and new. White Law Reed, ambassador and one-time VP candidate, said, without Scots, there would have been no United States of America. We should be careful here. Scots-Irish were not the only immigrant group that built America. German-Americans made a significant and early contribution as an immigrant group and also helped to settle the frontier areas we're talking about. New York City was a city built by the Dutch. African-Americans made a significant contribution to America, though they weren't brought here by choice. There were other English immigrants. Scots-Irish are just one of several English immigrants that came here. They're Puritans, Quakers, arrivals from the southeastern English seaports, like those Washingtons of Essex or the Lincolns of Norfolk, Quakers from the Midlands that became friends in Pennsylvania, Anglicans who escaped the English Civil War and came to Virginia and other colonies, Catholics in Maryland, Native Americans of course made a contribution, also helped to farm and clear the land, and of course the later immigrants, the Irish Americans as we know them, Catholic Irish in the 1840s, the Italian Americans that would come in the 19th century and early 20th, and of course, Swedish Americans like the Carlsons. We should make a distinction that's important for understanding the Revolutionary War, and that is the difference between Scots-Irish and Scots. Most Scots, with some exceptions during the Revolutionary War, particularly in New Jersey and the people like John Witherspoon who were supporting the Patriot cause, most Scots were not. Scottish Highlander units were sent to America to crush the rebellion, and they were among the fierce fighters fighting for the king. Scots who did arrive not through Ireland, but directly from Scotland and came to America, many of them got land patents for fighting in the French and Indian War. Several counties in upstate New York, there were land patents for Scots fighting in the French and Indian War. They were not going to turn around 10 years later and fight against the king who gave them land. So that's important to note. Scots-Irish different from Scottish. It was the French and Indian War that first set the Scots-Irish fighting. A royal proclamation in 1763 determined that settlers couldn't go past the mountains. The Appalachians. Some did anyway. It was a big point of contention and one worth fighting for. No expansion, no future. Manifest destiny, and Scots-Irish were on the vanguard of that. After they had helped to form the militias to win the fight for independence, Ulstermen did not stay where they were, in Pennsylvania or North Carolina exclusively. They settled all over America. Not surprisingly, Daniel Boone, Kit Carson, Davy Crockett were among their number. All of them had Scots-Irish ancestry. Sam Houston, president and then governor of Texas. His ancestors were from an Ulster family. So because they moved in an odd way westward, hugging kind of the interior of the country, things got interesting for this group during the Civil War. The southern orientation of South Carolina settlements led to the exploration of Kentucky and Tennessee. It meant that when the Civil War broke out, a good deal of the Scots-Irish, including President Jefferson Davis, with Johnny Reps, Jeb Stewart, and also Stonewall Jackson, great-grandson of a Londonderry Scots-Irish. 
asked who were the best soldiers. Robert E. Lee said, the Scots who came to this country by way of Ireland. Yet there were Scots-Irish above the Mason-Dixon line, too. And thus, there were more than a few Scots-Irish Billy Yanks, though they would not have liked that Yank moniker. Rockbridge County, we talked about with his capital named after Lexington, were among the anti-secession votes in the Virginia Convention. Appalachian counties contributed to Grant and Sherman's army. According to a book by Senator Jim Webb, who wrote one of the key books on the history of the Scots-Irish, the Civil War became a jumble. With the raw recent immigrants of the Irish Brigade fighting alongside Scottish Presbyterians, whose ancestors might have fought their Woodkern ancestors at Derry. Scots Irish on both sides in that conflict. That reveals how difficult it would be to pin down one single contribution to American politics made by this varying and spread out group. You can't say, that's the Scots Irish lobby at work in that issue. It doesn't work that way. For starters, it's among the oldest immigrant group that came in the 18th century, so there's been such intermarrying for centuries now that the name is only retained by a few census questionnaire respondents. A few million do use the term to describe themselves Scots-Irish, though some identify simply as American. The country's policy of westward expansion were promoted by these Americans. Freedom of religion, gun ownership, local government, posse comitatus, resistance to federal taxes. Yes, Scots-Irish were among those leading the so-called Whiskey Rebellion. All of these issues still talked about today would meet applause from the Ulstermen. And that leads to a conclusion that obviously we're going to put them more in the Republican group and the Tea Party group. And I said, if you have to throw the dart somewhere, that's where it's going to land. But Let's just uh, also make some other things clear. It was a group that escaped oppressive private sector action and unfair commerce, starting with big rack rents. Bill Clinton's Irish relative, Lucas Cassidy, was kicked out by his own family for non-rent payment and thus arrived in America. Grant's great-grandfather, John Simpson, left Ulster for America, 1760. Grover Cleveland's maternal grandfather, Abner Neal, left County Antrim in a similar time. Woodrow Wilson's great-grandfather was from County Tyrone, and Truman's maternal grandfather, Solomon Young, was a Scots-Irish settler from Kentucky. One biographer said about their attitude towards things. A home was a house to be lived in. A church was a building in which one might hear the word. A school was a place for teaching and learning. It is rare in the recent enthusiasm for preservation of American antiquities. This Scots-Irish edifice is found to be restored on the grounds of its beauty, originality, or charm, as often happens in Calvinist New England, Episcopal Tidewater, or the German farmlands. As for painting, busy people regarded it as a waste of time, and practical people saw no usefulness in it. Education was zealously sought, but the scholastic tradition of the Middle Ages, rather than the liberal tradition of the Renaissance, one never looked to a Presbyterian church for stained glass, religious painting, or sculpture. But what about music? Oh, did they ever make music? Taking the music from their Scots land and bringing it through their Ulster Irish home and then to America. The country music we know today is influenced by Scots Irish and so many country singers have Scots Irish heritage. Hank Williams, Merle Haggard, Reba McIntyre, Dolly Parton, all can trace to Scots Irish, as can Elvis Presley, the king of rock and roll, on his mother Gladys Presley's side. The great-great-grandfather married a Scots-Irish settler in West Tennessee. Though he was one of those non-Scot, Huguenot Scots-Irish, just to complicate things. On the father's side, there was a Scot ancestor, James Presley of Scotland, might have been through Ireland, but we don't know. But they didn't just make a contribution to music. They made a contribution to the early politics of the nation, and this is where I think you can trace them into the politics of today. 
they were generally not Federalist. They were supporters of the new anti-administration or Jeffersonian Republican Party. A representative Scots-Irish politician was William Finley, who arrived in America right before the Stamp Act and settled, like many, into Westmoreland County in Pennsylvania near Pittsburgh with no education. He soon became seen as a leader and was a supporter of the Democratic Constitution of 1776, which allowed more free white men to vote and removed property rights for voting. Radical move at the time, 1776, one that the legislature would actually revoke at a certain point and then it would come back. Finley was a supporter of the independence movement and of the Declaration, strong supporter, but he opposed the Constitution in the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention of 1788. As Finley and many of his Pennsylvania friends would say, it leaves us no relief, the Constitution, no relief or protection in state governments. His party, a backcountry populist, controlled the state government of Pennsylvania for many years. When Robert Morris, the wealthy Philadelphia financier, tried to start a Bank of North America, Finley opposed the bank as a way to centralize the currency of the country, keep the money, and extort farmers, depleting them of their wealth. He saw to it that the state he controlled, Pennsylvania, revoked the bank's charter, though Morris was able to keep his federal charter and keep operating. So, here you see it, against big government against big corporations, anti-bank, just like their cohort president, Andrew Jackson, would be. Another issue important to them was education. Wherever the Scots-Irish went, schools were certain to come with them. Presbyterians held a strong belief in mass improvement. And like all Protestants, it elevated the importance of being able to read the Bible for oneself rather than having it dictated to you. Where there was no school, it was common that a teacher funded by group donations was often found. Some of the town names of Scots-Irish include Enterprise, Improvement, Liberty, reflecting their philosophy. 207 permanent colleges in America before the Civil War, 49 of them begun by Presbyterians. That's more than any other religious group. Today, they're influential in two ways. One is that they haven't completely disappeared. There are still Americans who would identify as Scots-Irish, particularly in Appalachia. A few months ago, Michael Barone wrote a column, Why Jacksonians Don't Like Obama. Now, who are Jacksonians? Well, of course, we're talking about people in certain states. West Virginia, Kentucky, Arkansas, Tennessee. He's really talking about those, when he says Jacksonians, to people who in most cases could trace some of their ancestry to Scots-Irish. The party of Andrew Jackson, Barone was noting, can no longer seem to win in West Virginia, Kentucky, Arkansas, and Tennessee. They were among Obama's worst states. In some cases, he even performed badly in the 2012 primaries there with no significant opponent. Scots-Irish descendants Bill Clinton and Jimmy Carter won all of these states. But it's unlikely that they will get a DNC ad buy in 2012. Every winning Democrat prior to Obama won West Virginia, Missouri, and Arkansas to become president. Only Obama and Kennedy were able to win the presidency without that veritable Scots-Irish homeland of Kentucky and old Hickory's home state of Tennessee in their electoral college coalition. Ulsterman descendant Ronald Reagan appealed to these states with a message of individualism, freedom from the yoke of government. Clinton, too, appealed to his ancient relatives and prominent politics of his state with a middle-class tax cut and welfare reform. Yet in crafting a winning coalition, President Obama has done something slightly different. It's not to say he hasn't appealed to any Scots-Irish or didn't get any Scots-Irish votes, but he's appealed to African-Americans, Hispanics, youth voters, and drew new voters in 2008 of all nationalities. 
Hispanic voters may have, for the first time, made a Democratic Party victory possible without earning a significant amount of the Scots-Irish vote. And that could be significant. But let's examine what we're really talking about here. Just talking about the hard genealogical link, the people who are actually Scots-Irish and identify that way, well, that's pretty limiting. And it's not really what I mean to talk about. After all, people don't behave according to their nationality, especially where their link is old and faint. And scientists tell us that we're almost all completely alike, right? DNA, but... So I think it's useless if we're just talking about an older nationality only visible in a few states anymore. I'm not really talking about genes or ancestry. I'm not talking about some magic force or some mythical magic race, as sometimes you do have to watch in reading about the Scots-Irish because they are mythologized to a degree. It's not about genes. It's about impact on political culture. A country has a political culture. And yes, to some degree, America's political culture is shaped by the land itself, right? It's a big country. So that's going to lead to certain policies. But I think to have a political culture, there had to be bodies in there making that philosophy, that culture happen. So we have a very individualistic philosophy in America, a mistrust of government, an affinity for the states, policies to promote rural and suburban living like roads and subsidies on gas. Who were the bodies in there holding to that and making it, making that standard? I don't think it was the Federalist Party. Let's try to have a comparison to make it look real and to see what we're talking about here. Compare us to the country of the nation that colonized America, right? We should be something like the United Kingdom because that's where we originally were from. Most of the original settlers were coming from England. We speak a common language with the British, but we don't have a common government. 87% of the U.S. lives in cities. That's 92% in the United Kingdom now. That 5% is very meaningful. They have a universal state-funded healthcare system with a 20% tax to fund it and introduced tuition in colleges only in 1998 with limits on tuition increases and loans for most students. The marginal progressive tax goes up to 50% on very high incomes. Citizens cannot have guns there unless they're historic or aesthetic jewel-type pistols. Now, that's one way to do things, with all of its benefits and disadvantages. And right now in this program, I'm not going to compare and contrast what's good and bad about that. I'm just pointing out the cultural difference. The one way you got universal health care in America was to require everyone to buy it. Now, I don't love that idea, but I also see that it was the way to get through the American political culture. The hand of government is stronger in the UK than it is in the United States. Now, interesting about it, still the United Kingdom makes Cato's list of one of the top five countries in terms of free market. So it's certainly not a socialist nation, but there's a different government political culture. How did we get there? And what do the Scots-Irish have to do with it, especially now that it's 2012? Well, I think the genealogy of the Scots-Irish contribution to today's politics is obvious. They were the first non-federalists. Their involvement in the anti-constitutional effort, which brought the Bill of Rights, the Jeffersonian presidential movement, the politics of 1800, the politics in many states to allow more people to vote, just as they were the muscle in the revolution, they were the bodies that filled Democratic-Republican rallies in early America. And everything that came with that, all the compromises in our country that came with that. You weren't going to get Hamiltonian government if the Scots-Irish were there to say anything about it. They were individualists. They were believers in community, education, but also bootstraps. Yet they were not believers in limitless commerce being the cure for all problems in America. They believed in a fair deal as they escaped rich men 
who would have made them rent slaves. They were pro-freedom of enterprise, but not for large banks that might swallow up the middle class. Their contradictions are the American political issues today. That's why, to some degree, there is an appeal to their cultural influence in both parties, be it in states' rights, a disdain for federal taxes, a dislike of bailouts, of cronies appointed to positions by politicians, of landlords, of disliking a government program that's hard to understand, but liking something that's done in the form of a road or a school. Well, I think the influence will be there for this time. This election, 2012, might show if the Scots-Irish influence on politics is waning or not. Not gone, but waning. The point of history is, of course, to enlighten us about the past. And so as America starts to forget this group, it's up to us who enjoy history to keep bringing the story back. The story of America is at least one-fifth the story of the Scots-Irish. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Facebook site is there. or close to 1,500 members. Very proud to announce the best of My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, 21 podcasts, $9.99. It is available on iTunes. You can buy individual podcasts or you can buy the, the whole album. These are the 21 podcasts that were most popular by number of downloads. A lot of topics to talk about coming up with this election. I'm trying to get squeezing a whole bunch of things while I do the research to make sure what I'm saying is right. I do want to thank you for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.